Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Chosen Aliens by Pastor Sean Wood. Last week we began our uh, epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter, and we will continue that today. Last week we looked at uh, the transformed life of, of Peter the Apostle. And we'll work our way through the first two verses. I need everybody to know before we go any further today that myself and Steve Klein in no way, shape or form had spoken before today. Steve had absolutely no idea that I was going to be talking about predestination, foreknowledge and incorporating Ephesians chapter 1 as I do so. He had no idea. The Holy Spirit has a wonderful way of doing what he needs to do. But uh, there's a few things we need to know when we come to the letter. Uh, some people have said that Peter the Apostle didn't write it. This is glorious. I find this a glorious part of what God does. And many theologians have said the Greek is far above anything that we could expect from Peter. And they're right. Enter Silvanus. By the time we get to chapter 5, we will see that the man that pens this is Silvanus. The one who speaks it is Peter. Peter uh, uh, also speaks the gospel of Mark, but it is written by Mark. And I love how God brings people in to fill our gaps. Isn't it amazing how he does that? And Silvanus fills some gaps for Peter. And uh, Peter writes in the years somewhere around 62 to 64 AD. That's important because it's right at the birth of of Emperor Nero's reign. And uh, to put it in today's language of the millennials, uh, Nero was cray-cray. And we'll get to that as we work through this, but uh, Nero was somewhat insane. Uh, The churches listed as we work our way through are most likely established and uh, evangelised by Peter. And we have to understand as we begin to read this epistle, the audience that he's writing to are suffering Christians. He's writing to guys that are distant, away from Jerusalem, and they're, being, they're suffering and they're pers- being persecuted for the faith. And there's some rich, rich truth right in these first two verses that Peter wants to speak. You might be in that boat today. You might be saying to yourself, you know what, it just feels like cannonball after cannonball after cannonball. And Peter's got some very encouraging words to speak. Let's pray before we get into the word. Father, you're glorious and uh, today I pray that we would see more snippets of that wonderful glory as we open your word. I pray you open our eyes and you open our hearts, I pray in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Who here likes a good romance story? I don't. Uh, (laughs) Of course. Uh, I have have had to suffer under a few chick flicks, but uh, generally I I don't like romance stories. But the one romance story that I'm becoming more and more familiar with and I like is this one right here. This is the greatest romance story in the universe and I want, to, I want to speak to you today but I want to sort of introduce it by summing up what I've got to say. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard writes a parable and in that parable he speaks about a king and you know this king, he was a, he was a very powerful king, he was very well respected, he was, he was much feared by those, he had, a, he had an extensive kingdom and vast power. But this, kingdom was, this king was alone. But he fell in love with a maiden in one of the distant villages of his kingdom and he wanted this maiden for himself. But this maiden came from no royal line at all. There was no royalty to be found in her. And he thinks, how can I make this maiden my own? So, of course, the first obvious choice is, you know what? I will go down in all of my pomp and ceremony and glory and I will beat her over the head and take her into the kingdom. She will have to be mine. I have all the power. What I say goes. 
But then he thinks about it and he says, you know what, she might be in my house and she might say that she loves me and she might do whatever it is that pleases me, but in the end of the day, will she really love me? That's the concern. And he debates in his mind for a while and he says there is only one answer. And he steps up off his throne and he takes off his royal garments and he puts on the garments of a peasant. And he rides into the village and he knocks on her door because he knows I must win her heart. And friends, can I tell you that the greatest romance story ever written is the Bible where God does exactly that. God does not want a kingdom of robots. God never designed that. I've had people ask me, Pastor, why would God even put the tree in the garden to begin with? Because the minute the tree's in the garden, we have a choice. The minute we have a choice, the parameters of love expand rapidly. The minute the tree's in the garden, we have to choose God. And as we saw last week, Peter would put his hand up and say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, not because I have to be, but because I want to be. God had won Peter's heart. And God desires to win each and every one of our hearts. As we come to today's text, we're going to read some words that conjure up some some sometimes distorted images of who God is, and we'll touch on those. But quite often, um, I was was shocked when when I read the chapter in Exodus 32, and we all know the story. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up there and he's in the clouds there with God and he's talking. He's only supposed to be gone a short time. He's been gone for 40 days. Israel doesn't know where he is. And they come to Aaron and they say to Aaron, make us, a, make us an image that we can worship. And nothing's changed in thousands of years. By the time we get to the end of this, you're going to realise that nothing's changed in thousands of years. That, that, so Aaron does exactly that. He takes the gold from their jewellery and he fashions a golden calf. But what disturbed me the most was when they worshipped this calf, they didn't call this calf anything else apart from Yahweh. The interesting thing was they were saying this image is God. They had taken the most glorious person in the universe and they had reduced him down to something that was comfortable for them, something that they could control. Because when they got to the mountain, they said, we we can't handle the lightning and the thunder and the smoke. Make us something that we can control. And it's a distorted image. And here we are thousands of years later and so many people are worshipping a distorted image. Jesus said to the woman of the well, He said, you worship what you do not know. Why? Because she was ill-informed. The Samaritans held to the first five chapters of the Bible. That was it. And some of us here have a distorted image of God that he is some kind of mean ogre that is waiting to flog us. Or or every time we do something wrong, we think there's going to be a lightning bolt coming out of the sky. Or, Or we think that we have to be good for God to ever accept us. And in the first two verses of Peter this morning, we will blow all of those out of the water. If I just be good for a week, maybe God will give me what I want. Distorted images. God has given us everything that we could ever possibly want, and that is himself. And I love that. I love of Abraham. I love the heart of Abraham. God calls Abraham out and he makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, you know what, Abraham, I will be your reward. <laughs> and Abraham goes, that'll do me. I'm in. That's all I want. 
Let us come to the first two verses. Peter begins with, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He is speaking to those who are what I would like to call chosen aliens. And I know it's easy to believe that about others than it is some of it, than it is others. I, I know you're all sitting there going, if, if there's any aliens in here, pastor, it's got to be you. But we will get to the fullness of what that word actually means. But I want to start with the first word chosen. Uh, the word chosen here is the Greek for electos. And quite often we we, we depict the word chosen as, we take it back to gym class. Who can remember gym class when, when the PE teacher would say, we're going to play dodgeball and would, would pick out two people to stand there and, and choose some from others. And, and the choosing was based on our own merit. You know, we all know that the captains were going to choose the most popular kids first. Or, or the captain was going to choose those that, that, you know, he was going to choose the most physical kind of guys first. That's not what this means. Whenever we read the word chosen, we have to ask one very important question of the scriptures. What for? What are we chosen for? Israel was chosen. What for? To display the glorious purposes of God on earth. There is purpose in this. We must make it clear that uh, God is not picking some and rejecting others. That's not what this word means. And we will unpack that more when we get to Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 8 a little bit later. But one thing we have to know is uh, there is nothing inside of us that makes God do this. God sets his affections on each and every one of us because of his great grace and of his great mercy. We can never call God's justice and mercy and his fairness into being. Because if God treated us fairly, he would wipe us off the face of the planet. God is ever so gracious. The source of God's choosing anybody is his wonderful grace. And Peter's speaking to those who are chosen aliens or as the scripture here says, chosen exiles. And he's speaking about identity now. You see, because what happens here is the word exile means that they are temporary residents in a foreign place. And friends, if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, can I tell you that the planet Earth is not your home? We have an identity that lay outside of the here and now. We have an identity that lay in the heavens. C.S. Lewis says that those who have made the greatest impact in, their, in this world are those that have lived their lives in view of the next. Jesus says that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said, this is not my home. And we need to understand that as we come to the epistle of Peter. He's writing to people that says, you know what? Whatever's going on in your life, you need to take heart that it has a greater weight in eternity. You might be suffering now. You might be being persecuted now. But it all transfers to greater glory. Cast your eyes upon the homeland. We're not to build and establish our homes here. The purpose of God is is for us to live out his purposes here and now. We have a citizenship that lay elsewhere. Paul would go as far as to say that we are ambassadors for Christ. That's a profound word. 
We have a citizenship that lay elsewhere. This is not our home. We are merely passing through. On that note, we must ask ourselves a question before we go anywhere any further. Does our life depict that we have a citizenship in heaven? When I was in the forestry, I had the divine privilege of, of working with a lot of backpackers from around the world. They would come and travel and, and they would do seasonal work with us planting trees. I had about eight guys that were always with me and then I had about ten guys that floated that were from other countries. I had, I had guys from Canada, I had guys from Germany... We were blessed to have them. We had guys from Germany. We had guys from uh, Japan, Nagasaki. And and as far away as France, if you want to know, the laziest of them were the French. But one thing was clear. These guys would come in amongst us Aussie guys and you could tell that they were from another place. You could tell that they, you could tell it by the way they spoke. You could tell it by the way they think. You could even tell it by what their priorities were, that they were from another place. And they would tell you quite freely, I'm here in Australia just passing through on my way back home. We were glad that the French would go back home. <laughs> and that's how it should be in our own lives. People should be able to look at us and go, you guys aren't from here. You don't speak like we speak. You don't, you don't think like we think. And your priorities are completely different to ours. And we can say, oh, I've got a home somewhere else. Peter says to those who are elect exiles, you are, you are chosen Aliens, this is not your home. You have ten pegs at best. Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. Can I make it very clear for those that may know what Calvinism and Arminianism is? If John Calvin was alive today, I'm not sure he would be a Calvinist. If Joseph Arminius was alive today, I'm not quite sure he would be an Arminian. We need to drop all of those when we come to these words and all of the presuppositions when we come and ask ourselves the question, what exactly does the word foreknowledge mean? We're going to look at the word foreknowledge. Three main places in the Bible that that people allude to, which is Ephesians 1, Romans 8, we'll look at Romans 8, and this part of 1 Peter right now. The word foreknowledge means to to decide upon before. That's what the for is. But the no here, and no can be used five different ways in the Bible, but the no here speaks of an intimate relationship. In in Genesis, uh, it is said that Adam knew his wife. Who knows that he didn't gather any more information about him, but it's speaking about, about her. He's speaking about an intimate relationship. When we come to the word foreknowledge, and I searched as many commentaries as I could find. I'm going to throw some names out there for those that want to question the word foreknowledge. Uh, Wayne Grudem and John Stott and Edward Clowney, uh, all these kinds of guys, right down to Murray, who, who I'll quote in a moment, that say foreknowledge is a predetermination of God to set his love and affection on us. Each and every one of us are in the position that we are in because God has determined to love us and he has determined to set his love and affection on all, not just some, on all. 
He's, he, he's courting everybody, but not everybody will respond. This is much more than intellectual cognition. It speaks of a personal relationship of care and affection. And what greater comfort can you draw from words like this when you are suffering and persecuted? We'll unpack this more as we move along, but Murray says in his commentary, he says, no is used in a sense practically synonymous with love. In other words, whom God foreknew is whom God foreloved. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We need to understand as we come to verse 3 that uh, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church but he's writing to a group of people and he's going to sum it up with two words that I think are very, very important as we read the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, underline these words, in Christ. And as we read through this uh, chapter we will see that he is speaking to those that are in him, in Christ. Brother Robert, could you stand up? As you can see, Brother Robert here, I'm going to explain what in him means. Brother Robert, just like me, is, is auditioning for the worship team, as you can see, by the skinny jeans and such. We'll get in one day, brother. But, <laughs> but right here at the moment, there's two of us, okay? And, and I, Rob can go that way and, and I can go this way and we're two separate people. But what the word in him means is we no longer are two people, we are one. I'm going to explain this a little bit later on. But this is, this is a profound truth. You can sit down, brother. You can't go your own way just yet. So to be in Christ means we live and we move and we have our being in him. And that is the audience that Paul is talking to in Ephesians chapter 1. He's not giving us a prescription to come into salvation. He's not talking about a puppet master. He's not painting a picture of a puppet master pulling some strings and neglecting others. That's not the picture that is painted here. But rather it is talking about a position and a status that is occupied by those that say yes. Let's have a look at some of the words. Even as, verse 4, he chose us in him. What are we chosen for? Those that are in him before the foundation of the world, he has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him in love. An impossibility without the person of Jesus Christ. In him... Chapter 1 says, we have our redemption. In him we obtain an inheritance once we come into him. Great word that uh, uh, Steve highlighted this morning as we read on. It says in verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. That word adoption is a beautiful word. We're going to touch on that in a moment. But he predestined us. And the word uh, predestined there is a verb which is in the Greek, perizo. And Vine's uh, Dictionary of Greek Words gives the best rendering of this when it says that predestined means it is a reference to that which the subjects of his foreknowledge are predestined. This is the place, this is the position that God has predetermined that we would occupy. What is that position? What is that place? It's profound. It's called adopted as sons. I I take great courage in this. 
I take great confidence. Most people here will know what I'm going to say and will be affectionate to what I'm going to say. When I was in Tasmania, we, we wanted a family dog. So we, we went to the RSPCA down in Tasmania and after much deliberation, we, we found a dog. And he was, he was about this big, the biggest sook I've ever known, <laughs> apart from if he came into our backyard of a night time and he didn't know you. But he was the biggest sook, great with the kids, awesome. Uh, if... I could always tell you when a thunderstorm was three hours away because he would begin tearing the place apart. He could, and that's why we couldn't bring him with us. But, but we got Rocco from... Uh, 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 and we gave him that name because he was very fast, but he was completely clumsy. He'd trip over and smack his face all the time. But he would, we got him from the RSPCA. And you know what? When he came to our house, yes, he was a dog. Yes, he had four legs. But you know what? To us, he was family. And I know there's a lot of people here that are sitting there going, oh, we know exactly what you're talking about, Pastor. And yet, it only ever refers to dogs, not cats. <laughs> <clears throat> cats adopt us, we don't adopt cats. So I'm led to believe. But it's the same with God. God says, you know what, when you come into my kingdom, when you come into my family, it, I, I don't want you to occupy a place as a slave or a servant. I want you to be my son and my daughter. You get all the privileges that my son gets. And by the way, when it comes to foreknowledge, uh, Peter 1.20 says that Jesus, God foreknew Jesus. So he kind of selected Jesus from a group of people. How many candidates were there when, Jesus, when they were thinking? No, just one. Jesus. Adoption is not putting us into the family by spiritual birth but it's rather putting us into position as sons. That's what God had predestined. That's what God had set, up, set the framework from the beginning of time was, anybody who's in my house is not a slave or a subject. You are a son. God has foreordained this position for us. Let's come to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to touch briefly on Romans chapter 8. We will do some more work on Romans at another time, but I believe quite often we read a small portion, portion of Romans 8 with, and forget everything that's either side of it. And we also forget uh, everything that's going on in the context of what Paul wants to say. And I want to begin in verse uh, 28 of chapter 8, and it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. How many of us know that verse? Everyone goes, yeah, amen. And it's, and it's true. Ask Joseph. All things work together, Joseph, for good. And we know that for those who love God, now there's the audience, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This isn't predestination to salvation. This isn't, no, he has decided that for those who will be in his family, he will conform you to the image of his son. The greatest blessing that God can give you while you're here on this earth is anything that will make you more like Jesus. That's the greatest blessing. Anything that God does in your life that makes you more like Jesus, get on your knees and thank him because you will when you stand before him. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And here's what Paul's going to begin to unpack here, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified and he also glorified. The important word in all of that is he. Paul is writing to an audience and says, you guys are clamouring for confidence. You will find it in him. He has begun a work. He will complete the work. All things will work together for good. God will not leave you alone. What's the subject of Romans 8? Have confidence in his love. Because what comes afterwards is God's everlasting love. Who can separate us from the love of Christ comes after these verses? Nobody. Is God absolutely sovereign? The answer to that question is yes. Does God want every man, woman and child to come into salvation? The answer is yes. Does God pursue our hearts relentlessly like the hound of heaven? Yes. Are we responsible for putting our hands up and saying, we surrender to you, God, and responding to him? Yes. And what is the best way to picture this? What is the best analogy that I can give you to describe this beautiful romance story? It is, of course, the cosmic marriage. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about marriage and he's talking about man and woman leaving and becoming one flesh. And he says, this is a profound mystery and I'm talking about Christ and his church. You see, there's a cosmic marriage. And just as in physical marriage... uh, It takes one must take the initiative. When my wife took the initiative to relentlessly pursue me, I'm going to let you meditate on that for a moment. When Jesus says in John, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says, none can come to me unless my Father draws him, when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I shall draw all men unto him, it is an analogy to to a reaction and a response to his love. It's not if you lift me up in worship, well, that's a great idea, but it's speaking about the fact that this one act of love is like courtship on our hearts. That's what this drawing is. It's a divine courtship. And that's what God is doing. He is the one that takes the initiative to pursue our hearts. We will not pursue him if he does not pursue us first. But what a glorious God that he would even think to pursue us. None of us in this room deserve it. Least of all, myself. And just like the king chasing his maiden, one must take the initiative. And the relationship is only formed when the other person says, Then the two become one. But what happens if the other person says no? No relationship. No matter how much the one pursuing desires that relationship. And just like what happens in a physical marriage, one party is going to assume a completely new identity. We change our name. Most often ladies change their name. But when the two become one, there's a completely new identity now. We don't operate as one anymore. We operate as two. The greatest romance story speaks about a God who relentlessly pursues our hearts and takes the initiative. Because why? Because he wants us to say, I do. He wants every one of us to say, I do. And who knows, men, we know, 
that marriage is not a one-time thing. We don't, marriage isn't the day we say I do. Marriage begins at the day we say I do. And so it is with our relationship with Christ. In fact, physical marriage as well as spiritual marriage with God is saying I do each and every morning. And just as in physical marriage, God requires a singleness both of heart and mind towards him. Peter is writing, excuse me, Peter is writing to suffering Christians and he says, God, to those whom God has loved, to those whom God has determined to set his love on, according to his determination to love you in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does it mean when, when Peter says in the sanctification of the Spirit? Sanctification involves a process of separating. We'll cover these terms before we get to the rest of chapter one. Sanctification, and I appreciate what Mark shared recently, uh, a couple of months ago, about being saints and holy. Uh, Whatever is holy is not what it's missing. You see, when you read in Scripture, an object becomes holy when God comes close to that object. Holiness uh, and sanctification, the emphasis in sanctification is not what you no longer do, it's about what you do do. And sanctification is no longer about uh, what you're walking away from, but who you're walking towards. The best way we could understand this is the process, and today's probably a good day to remember, where we take civilians and turn them into soldiers. You are separating civilians by a process into being soldiers. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And the best way to understand obedience to Jesus Christ is to live our lives in accordance with. It's living our life in accordance with and completely surrendered to Christ. The last term there, which brings confusion to some people, and I want to touch on it before we finish these two verses, and I begin to wrap this up, is the sprinkling with his blood. And people go, what on earth does that mean? And Peter is referring back to Moses when he initiates the covenant in the book of Exodus, and he comes down and he takes the blood of the sacrificed lamb and he sprinkles it. And what he's saying is, this: yes, this starts the covenant. Yes, this initiates the covenant between you and God. But here's the biggest thing that that statement says. You belong to somebody else. You're in covenant with God. That's what he's saying to these guys. You, you guys belong to somebody else. I want to ask everybody here a $10 million question. This is the $10 million question. I love the first two verses of of the epistle of Peter. And we really could talk for extensive amount of times on the, on the subjects of foreknowledge and predestination and what it fully could possibly mean. But overarchingly, the picture we get from these two verses is that God loves us and he is setting his love on us. He has chosen us to occupy a place in his kingdom It speaks of identity, it speaks of belonging, it speaks of relationship, and it speaks of purpose. And what then should be our response of the one that pursues us so diligently? I want to ask you, I don't want anybody to shout this out because I know what the answer will probably be. I I want you to ask this question to yourself in your own heart this morning. Let's say I came to you and said, last night I buried $10 million in your backyard. And let's say I said to you, I haven't buried it any deeper than six feet. And if you can't find it inside of 48 hours, I'm going to come and take it back. If you find it inside of 48 hours, you can keep every cent. 
who knows, your behaviour would radically change from that point in time. Who knows, the first phone call you make is to your mate with the backhoe. (laughs) But who also knows that if you couldn't get a hold of a backhoe, by hook or by crook, you would be in that backyard with a shovel seeking diligently that $10 million. Who knows that your behaviour would likely change, but you're likely to wake up tomorrow morning and ring the boss and go, for whatever reason, I'm not coming in. That's a beautiful picture of what God does somewhat to us. It's only a small snippet of what God does when he pursues the heart uh, of men. But our response should be exactly the same. That we should seek God. That's what Jesus is talking about. When he says ask, when he says seek, when he says knock, get the shovel out. Do whatever you have to do. Get out into the backyard. Because if there was $10 million in your backyard, you would be up for the next 48 hours digging to try and find it. Put aside your agendas. Put aside all of these things and pursue me relentlessly. As we saw last week, the transformed life is not reserved for a select few. The transformed life is not reserved for Peter the Apostle. It was not reserved for Smith Wigglesworth. It wasn't reserved for John Wesley. And has been set aside for every one of us. The richness of the relationship is on us. I leave you this morning, as we begin to close, I I leave you with the words of A.W. Tozer. These words haunt me to this day. So read The Pursuit of God at your own risk, because it is a fantastic book. But in the book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer says that God waits to be wanted. And he goes on to say, and he waits far too long. God has taken the initiative. God has moved towards mankind. We paint a picture of a God that is so often distant, but he is a God who is close at hand. For every word that you will speak to him, he's not drawing away, he's leaning into you. You know when, you know when your children run up and you're trying to be attentive to what they're saying and you'll sit down and you'll lean into what it is that they've got to say? That's what God does with us. God clings on every word that we say. He hears every heartbeat. And he sits and he waits to be wanted. I'm going to ask if the worship team will come back up. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.